Welcome to the meaning stream, brothers and sisters. It's your boy Kira the Dawn. Hey, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Welcome to Meaning Crisis and Chill on the Meaning Stream. We're doing Meaning Crisis and Chill, everyone's favorite lo-fi lecture series with John Vivaki and Akira the Don in it. Tonight we're doing number eight, the Buddha and mindfulness. Oh yeah! Hey, and without further ado, let's just get after it. How about that? No, no, no countdown today. No long countdown. We're just getting straight into the action. Straight into the action. Who's excited? Who's excited for some meaning crisis and chill with Viveki Don and Akira the Don? Make some noise in the chat by Jove. God bless each and every one of you. So good to see you here. Hello, Luke. Hello, Jay Holbrook. Hello, Ripper Prox OS. Hello, Neo Stoicism. Hello, Ekans Villiers and Caroline H. Wow. 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 Well, that's good. You know, we haven't had any like major uh, upsets on this uh, show for a while, but today we had uh, the stream didn't broadcast to YouTube. It went somewhere else, and then we started another stream, and it did something else strange. And I think that's a good sign. I think I'm going to take that as being lucky. Lucky. Let me know, brothers and sisters, is everything okay now? Does everything sound and look as it should? Is everything coming through clear? Uh, is everything coming through professionally and wonderfully and gloriously? Do let me know, brothers and sisters. Please do let me know. This is a professional broadcast after all, and only, only the best. Only the best for you. Caroline H, get out of bed. Get up and get after it, Caroline H. Where have you been? Where have you not been loved? Where have you not been in the morning show? Get after it. Get 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 get, get after it. Hey. Well, it's wonderful to see you all here. We're doing Meaning Crisis and Chill with Viveki John and Akira the Don. Eight, Buddha and Mindfulness, an incredible story about a boy in a palace and a father who really just really shouldn't have bothered. Yeah. Man, I had a wonderful day, you know? I had a wonderful day today about, I don't know about you. We did a Meaning Wave morning show, we had a wonderful morning show, you know? Got raided by the next man, played loads of disco, it was so cool. Me and the boyfriend for a walk afterwards, you know, there was a few snowmen still in Dripping Springs, because you know it snowed in Dripping Springs, did you know that? It snowed for the first time in 60 years in Spain, and in the same day, here in Dripping Springs, Texas. Well, me and my boy saw some snowmen, and my boy killed the snowmen. And we saw a dead deer too. Any day that you kill some snowmen and see a dead deer is a day of luck. A lucky day, I say, and lo, it was a lucky day. Great Day Woo was working on uh, the album that's coming out in March. It's sounding amazing. Went through the mixes for the album that's coming out in February. It's amazing. And guess what else, brothers and sisters? Guess what else, brothers and sisters? Could you guess? Could you even guess? Could you even guess? Yes, you're right, you're right. We hit our stretch goal. Our number, was it seven number stretch goal? Number seven stretch, no, our number six stretch goal. Stretch goal number six on the JBP Wave vinyl campaign of 29K, at which point we were gonna unlock making a whole album, a whole new album using JBP Wave 3, the, the classic mix as a jump off point, just like we did with JBP Wave Father and JBP Wave 1. Just like we did with the new album, which is coming out in eight days, JBP Wave Aesthetic, with the classic mix JBP Wave 2. Oh! 
That means, brothers and sisters, you are getting a minimum of two JVP Wave albums this year. Congratulations. Congratulations. Very, very exciting. We've announced the next series of Stretch Goals. At 30K, YouTube Hero Alex will do a face reveal. YouTube Hero Alex will reveal his face if we cross the 30K Rubicon, which is very, very exciting. And then the next Stretch Goal, which is incredibly exciting, and it's so exciting that when I read it aloud for the first time, it made my tummy go weird, and it's making my tummy go weird now, just looking at it as words. At 34K, we will hire an orchestra. Hire an international orchestra, a world-class class orchestra of 30 human individuals to play on a song on that new album. I've been wanting to do this for so, so long. I was actually able to do it at one point. At one point in my early career, I was signed to a big record label called Interscope Records. You might have heard of them. Uh, they were, you know, they released records by people like Nine Inch Nails and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, you know. And uh, they gave me quite a big uh, budget to record my album. So I was able to hire an orchestra for a song. And uh, I wrote this song, you know, and I had an orchestra play on it, and it was there when they pl I was there when they played it, you know? And everybody cried because it was so beautiful. The violinists were crying, you know? And the woman who was conducting it had a baby strapped around, you know? It was a very beautiful moment. And ever since I've been making Meaning Wave, I've wanted to be able to, I've wanted to, be able to get to the position where I could get an orchestra to play on a song, you know? I've been doing, I mean, we, it sounds like there's orchestras on some of the songs. That's me with synths and keyboards and, and uh, sample uh, instruments, you know, where, you, where someone sampled someone playing a string and then you play it on a keyboard. I've always wanted to, there's something magical that happens when you get a whole bunch of people together in a room to play, uh, to play, play an orchestra, you know? And I've been wanting to do that on a song. And at 30, if we hit 34, we will do that. We will hire a world-class 30-piece orchestra to play on a song on that album. Uh, that would be very epic. And then after that, stretch goal number nine, 39K, we will turn JBP Wave 4 into an album. That just leaves three. That just, Three is confirmed. One is done. Two is done. That will then be uh, four, five, and six to get turned into albums. And then we can go into the future. Then we can do, oh my goodness. Very, very exciting. So back that campaign today, brothers and sisters. Back that campaign today. Because not only do you want JBP Wave vinyl to exist, you want JBP Wave 4 turned into an album, and you want a 30-piece orchestra playing on a Meaning Wave song. That would be epic. That will be epic. That will be epic, brothers and sisters. What do you say? What do you say? Cindy Bailey says, that sounds surreal. Throne Peace says, sounds like a scene from Big Fish. Eckers Villiers says, the orchestral revival. Savage Chill says, that would be some next-level epic right there. I would say that will that will, language is powerful, brothers and sisters. That's one thing I've learned. And one thing I've been really trying to pay, been really, not trying, I've been really paying attention. See, that was it right there. I've been really paying attention to, particularly doing these streams. I've been paying attention to the language I use. As you know, I stopped using the Lord's name in vain. I stopped damning things. I used to damn everything, didn't I? I'd be like, I was damning you. How could I have done that? Now I bless everything. God bless. I say, God bless. When previously I was damning, you know, and life, life is wonderful, you know. Feels like it works, frankly. Feels like it works. Savage Chill says, okay, fair enough. It will be some next level epic. Yes, it will. Daniel Lazarevsky Evsky, says, get that cello solo in. You already know. Nah, I'll be down there with my tambourine, you know. Hey, guys. Yeah, I, my goodness. There's actually video footage 
I believe, of that de- that orchestra recording day. I've got to try and dig that out. I bet it'll be really, really small. All videos recorded in around 2005 were very, very small. I don't know why, but they were. They were tiny videos. I think people uh, had small... Everyone was tiny then, maybe. Maybe we were all borrowers. Maybe everything's just grown apart from the videos. Sativa Skunk says, curse words resonate not with what you damn, but with yourself as well. Ain't that true? Ain't that so, so true? Walking Mall Pert says, reminds me of how Moody Blues and Procol Harum and rock bands went through an orchestral phase in the 60s and 70s. Definitely a revival. Honestly, it's my favorite thing. I remember when I first heard, uh, you know, when uh, when I was a teenager and I was into Britpop. There was a period in the Britpop phase where, where basically the album, the, the bands started doing well enough to be able to hire orchestras. And so they all did. Everyone did a song with an orchestra. Uh, Oasis did whatever. It was amazing. Yeah, Embrace came out. They did some. It's like every every Britpop band had a song with an orchestra, and they were always amazing. I love like as a genre, the uh, rock band with orchestra is one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite bands of all time is a band called Cockney Rebel, and they had a couple. They did an album called The Psychomodo, which is a wonderful album. If you've never heard it, I really recommend it. And it had a couple of albums, songs on it with just full-blown orchestra. And they're some of the best songs ever made by human beings, you know. If you ever saw the film Velvet Goldmine, Radiohead covered their songs on that soundtrack. That soundtrack was a bunch of uh, Cockney Rebel songs remade by Radiohead and various other people. Whoa! Cindy Bailey says Metallica performed with an orchestra on S&M. Indeed, indeed. When orchestras get involved, things get epic, baby. If... The people doing it are smart. Some people muck it up, you know. It's a hard thing to muck up, though. An orchestra is a really difficult thing to muck up. And you already know your boy Akira knows what the flip he is doing. So if we get us a meaning wave orchestra... And of course, you do understand that one of the main aims is, of course, to take this into the world, right? Go out into the world, Meaning Fest on tour, you know, traveling Meaning Way Festival with ultimately a traveling 30 piece orchestra. Right? 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 How epic will that be? Hero. Young Shadow says, What was that Psycho album you recommended? The Psycho Modo by Cockney Rebel. So people, Cockney Rebel are famous for Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile. That's their famous song, but their amazing songs are uh, Sebastian. That's an amazing song. And, uh, oh, dear, look what they've done to the blues, 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 which is a song called Tumbling Down. Incredible record. Gee, but it's hard when one lowers one's guard to the vultures. Oh, baby. Oh, baby, just thinking about that record gives me chills, you know? Yeah! So that's what we're aiming at, baby. We're, baby, we're aiming. We're aiming at that elite tier level. All right? None of this sample pack nonsense, none of this, like, sample instrument nonsense. We're aiming at elite tier god music. All right? That's what we deserve, right? That's what we deserve here in the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. We deserve elite God-tier music. And we've already been making elite God-tier music, actually. And now we deserve to do it with 30 trained professionals. I believe! 
And with that being said, let's do the international high five and then let's get after it. So, for the international high five today, I will say to you this, if money was no object, how would you improve the meaning wave experience? If money was no object, how could you improve the meaning wave experience? Any aspect of it, the live aspect, the music, uh, the videos, the, the community, the, the stream, whatever. Think big, baby, let's think big. Me, I'm just gonna put it out there. Uh, take everybody in some kind of traveling device, maybe just a, a dimension hopping thing, or just or maybe a, a, a device of ship, and go to the dark side of the moon and do a show over there. That'd be really cool. I wanna know what's going on over there and I wanna do a show over there. With all of you. Hurrah! Becca H says, God tier music is great, but we are a mere $155 away from the YouTube hero Alex face reveal. Ah! What a time to be alive. What a time indeed, Becca H. What an absolute, uh, what an absolute. I mean, what was it your boy Paul Simon said? He said, this is the age of miracles and wonders, right? This is the long distance call. And he was not wrong. He was not wrong. This is the age of miracles and wonders. And this is the long distance call to all of you at once. Robert Easley, Chicago, albums every month. Oh, we're working on that. You got one this month, you got one next month, you have one the next the one after. Definitely having three months of consecutive albums. Serge uh, Pula in the basement. I need to sit on the end of my bed and let an incremental improvement come to me. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> hey! Vanessa, teleport and play live here at the beach. Oh, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Teleport to Australia and play on the beach. Young Shadow, a visualizer for Meaning Wave. What's a visualizer? Fool Killer, Maryland, on offer enough money to get the rights to get the unreleased Joseph Campbell album release! Yo, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a stretch goal. Cindy Bailey on the dark side while it faces her. Adam, Paul Simon's reference, subbed. <laughs> well, quite right too. Sajutej says, multiple audio channels playing. <laughs> I even see that, thank you. Thank you for the support, Sajutej. D-Man, tri-state, if money was no issue, I'd get you a lunchbox sound generator slash synth. It makes weird noises, glitches, robot sounds. Hey, thanks, D-Man. That's very nice of you. Defy Bay Area, build Maslantis, city of meaning. Yes! Yes, this is the kind of big think. This is the kind of big think I'm talking about by Joe. Savage chill, here we go, this is what we want. Holographic performance in concerts around the world recorded at one live location. That and sending every meaning wave piece out to the stars for the extra wavy creatures to hear. Yes, Savage Shield, yes. Shroom Main 45, Meaning Wave Festival, Meaning Fest, yes. Cedric Church, Fool Killer wins the I5. Fool Killer is very reliable with regards to thinking. Sativa Skunk, Adam, make sure to do the international high five. Caroline H, I would pay to get everyone together in a no gravity room. Yeah. Florent P, MAZ, as opening act for JBP's upcoming tours. Ha! 
Young Shadow, a visualizer of just those neon lights or patterns that move with the music and beat, but one specifically for Meaning Wave and with all the Meaning Wave stars. Ooh, yeah, that would be lovely. Will! Will! Let's make all of these things happen. Why not? They're all good ideas. I haven't had a bad idea yet. Walking more Pope Virginia, make Meaning Wave the mainstream method of all information consumption. It won't be long before entire books, entire works of philosophers, complete libraries of Meaning Wave Ed. So it says, there's three monoliths. <laughs> Miss Superconductor, meaning time capsule. Hey, did you ever make a time capsule when you were a little kid? I did. Oh, I want to go dig it up. I buried it in a garden somewhere in Wales. Shit, so I want that time capsule. You ever do that? You like get a box and you put up like a, a sealed Tupperware or it was like a I can't remember what kind of box it was. I put a bunch of stuff in it. I wrote something. I put some toys. I made a mixtape. Shoot. Just buried it. Spigandi. Maz exists out of space and time, so it's live anytime I'm awake. That's true. Spigandi says monoliths will be cool. Daniel uh, Lazoryevsky. Boops, not coos. Or coops. Ekansvillier. I would paint the Great Pyramids. <laughs> That's a good idea. Vanessa wants an inflatable monolith. D-Man, a monolith for every man, woman, and child. Keith Crafting, meanwhile, just has, has this to say. Media Wave exists! Which is a very good point. Very Michael Keith also exists. Deceiver Skunk, Skunk also exists. And Mike Betters too exists as meaning wave jewelry, action figures, bed sheets, blow torches, pillows, drapes, toilet paper, meaning wave shaped pasta. Deceiver Skunk says Maz member Adam. Indeed, well there you go. I think we get an international high five for all those great ideas and we've we've put all that out there now into the cosmos and you know the uh, our Unconscious minds can start working on manifesting that stuff into the actuality. Hurrah! With no further ado then. Three, two, one. High five. And hold it right there. Hold that high five, you beautiful thank you, and uh, smash like with the other hand. There's a number of you here who have not yet smashed the like. That is a crime against nature itself. Smasheth ye yonder like. Blesseth ye up. Meaning crisis, eth ye. Also chill. I'm just gonna keep holding this for a minute. And now we're gonna let it go. Three, two, one. On that bombshell. Let there be meaning. Crisis. Also.
Chill. Vicky, John, and Akira the Dawn present. Awakening from the meaning crisis, the Buddha, and mindfulness. Meaning wave edition. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. <clears throat> so last time we took a look at uh, the second half of Aristotle and his further developments of the Axial Age's understanding of meaning and wisdom. And we took a look more at the, what you might call the world side of things. And we took a look at uh, uh, Aristotle's worldview, the, the two components, his conformity theory, which is uh, important alternative understanding of knowledge is the contact epistemology is intimate uh, knowing and being uh, with something and uh, how plausible that uh, contact epistemology actually is and then we also looked at a plausible turned out to be false but a plausible model of the world that is uh, very consonant and consistent with that conformity uh, theory. This is a world, a geocentric world that is moved by natural motion. It's a cosmos. And then we use that to discuss how the theory of the world and the theory of how we know the world and be within the world are int uh, mutually, intimately connected and mutually supporting. And you get worldview attunement uh, and how that creates existential modes in which uh, we are co-identifying the agent and the arena and creating the meta-meaning, the, 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 the relationship that makes all individual acts and events and situations and places meaningful for us. And how important that consonance is between our existential mode and our intellectual understanding and why Aristotle uh, is so prominent because of his capacity to create a worldview that lasts for a millennium uh, and being uh, so uh, well attuned a worldview. We then paused uh, from our discussion of the Axial Age in Greece and we moved to the Axial Age in India for the explicit purpose of trying to discuss uh, the impact uh, of the mindfulness revolution and the part of the thesis of the series is the mindfulness revolution is a response to uh, the meaning crisis in the West and the growing confluence between Buddhism and cognitive science is an attempt to address and provide solutions to the meaning crisis in the West. We started by looking at the figure who epitomizes the axial revolution within ancient India and that's Siddhartha Gautama. And we began by looking at his myth, his mythological uh, biography, if you want to put it that way, and I remind you again how I am using the word myth. And we began by taking a look at his early life within the palace. We stepped aside and examined the palace as a mythological representation of a particular existential mode. We talked about two different existential modes following the work of Fromm. It's also a convergent of work from Buber other uh, important thinkers, Stephen Batchelor is going to make use of this distinction, etc. Fromm talks about uh, two modes, two existential modes, the having mode that's organized around meeting our having needs. And 
which we perceive the world categorically. We want to manipulate it and solve our problems and control it. And the being mode, which is organized around our being needs, these are needs that are met by becoming something mature, virtuous, uh, love. And we then talked about the possibilities of modal confusion, being locked in the having mode and trying to meet your being needs within the having mode. So trying to uh, meet your need for maturity by uh, having a car or meeting your need for being in love by having lots of sex. And we talked about uh, the fact uh, that you can, get in, get, you can become enmeshed in modal confusion and how that becomes a vicious cycle because as your being needs are frustrated, you pursue evermore the misframed projects that the modal confusion is giving you. You try more and more to have things as opposed to more and more become what you need to become. And then I suggested to you that being in the palace is a mythological representation of this kind of modal confusion in which we are stuck in the having mode. And of course, this also had one important cultural point, and I did say at the beginning that we would talk about, the, we would develop a way of talking about the connections between the meaning crisis and other crises we are facing. So issues about uh, a market economy and a commodification of everything and everyone, by inducing modal confusion, it is possible to sell you more. And as, as your identity becomes more and more a political and economic thing and commodity that should be categorically understood and manipulated, the more and more I can sell you things and sell you ideas and manipulate you accordingly. So this has uh, important ramifications for us now. That's why it's a myth. Because it has important ramifications for us right now. But, as I mentioned, Siddhartha does not stay in the palace. He is, his curiosity becomes too great. And there are all kinds of variations on this story. <clears throat> and I don't think there is an absolute canonical way of saying it. But he decides to leave the palace. He goes out in his chariot with his charioteer Chandra. And they're traveling around. And he sees a sick person. And he's distressed. What's wrong with that person? He's, and Chandra says, my lord, he's, he's, he's sick. <coughs> and Siddhar said, well, what did he do to cause that? And it's like, nothing. It's just, it, it happens to everybody. Everybody gets sick at some point. It's just part of the way of things. <coughs> You can see this is like, this is the axial awakening, right? Remember the axial revolution is awakening about what's actually going on in the suffering in the world. And so Siddhartha is like very distressed. He's like, what? But you, I could get sick too? And Chandra said, well, of course, of course. I mean, part of the conceit of the myth is that Chandra is sort of oblivious to Siddhartha's whole history, which is, of course, unbelievable. But it's, that's the point of a myth to get you to realize things, not to convince you about historical truths. So Siddhartha is distressed and he says, take me away from here, I don't want, I don't want to see this anymore. And so they drive, they drive along and right, they meet an old person. And Siddhartha says, stop, stop, is, is that person sick as well? No, my lord, he, he's not sick, he's old. Old? What do you mean? 
well, this happens to everyone through the passage of time. You mean he didn't do anything in particular? No, it, it wasn't any, it's not his fault. He just, he's become old. And now Siddhartha's like, no, okay, let's go back to the palace. This is really bad. So they're making their way back to the palace. He's trying to return to that, right, that self-enclosure of the pure having mode. But you know, that's the thing about confusion. Once it starts to be dissipated, you can't return to it. So he's trying to return, and of course, he meets a funeral procession. There's a corpse. And Siddhartha said, is, 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 he, is, what, is, that, is that person sick? Are they old? So no, that person's dead. They're dead. They're not alive anymore. What? But why? Well, my lord, it happens to everybody. Now, do you see what's happened here? The having mode has been completely undermined. It's been completely undermined. And so Siddhartha is experiencing an existential crisis because this is happening at the level of his existential mode. That's what it means to, when we talk about an existential crisis. So he's like, get me back to the palace absolutely now. And so now there's a mad dash. And as he's trying to get back to the palace, try to enfold himself back into that world, he meets one more thing, one more person actually. He meets a mendicant, he meets one of these people that has given up the having mode. They were called renouncers because they have renounced the world of the palace, of luxury. Pardon me. And there's a deep peace in this man's eyes. And the contrast, right? And think, think about, think about how again, this is not just a, a matter of belief. This is a matter. This is happening in his entire being. His entire being is resonating with this distress because it's the whole way in, right, in which he is coupled to the world that has been suddenly thrown into confusion. There's all of this happening. This deep, and the contrast with the peace that he sees in the man's eyes. Turns to Chandra and says, "Who is this?" And Chandra said, "It's a mendicant. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a wandering person." And that person, of course, represents is the introduction, not the intellectual introduction, but the direct confrontation with the being mode. This is a person who has realized peace. And Siddhartha feels that contrast poignantly, powerfully, painfully. So he returns to the palace with these four signs burning in him. The illness, the old age, the death, but also this representative of the being mode, somebody who has cultivated wisdom and peace. Found some kind of deep connectedness that is untouched by the vicissitudes of our mortality. Of course, Siddhartha cannot find the peace he wants. He cannot get back to the palace. Look, think about the double senses of this word. Because it's really pertinent here. Disillusionment. 
When we describe somebody as disillusioned, we're usually talking about a, a state in which they are perhaps moving towards despair, they're sad, they've experienced loss. It's a negative state. But notice at the heart of it is the loss of illusion. This is an axial age thing. He is losing the illusion of modal confusion and he's, he's losing that sense of belonging that he had when he was in the palace. He doesn't belong there anymore. He tries. He tries to make it work. We're going to talk about this later. We're going to talk about this. Why is it after people have these kinds of awakening experiences, they feel that they need to transform their whole lives, that they can't go back, that there's something irreversible about it? This is something we're going to directly talk about. In fact, can we, can we get a cognitive scientific purchase on that? But he can't go back. The disillusionment is too real. So he decides to leave. And this, this, this is not an easy choice. He has a wife, he has a child. We, we may, in fact, even ethically criticize him. I mean, he's abandoning his son, he's abandoning his wife. But there's a sense here that, and, and of course we should make moral reflection, we should make moral arguments. Um, but what the myth is saying is the moral life sits upon something deeper. That carrying out your moral responsibilities, well, important, of course, can ultimately be rendered meaningless if you've lost meaning. Morality sits on, depends upon your life being meaningful. And we're going to talk about this a lot later when we talk about the work of Susan Wolf and others. Meaning in life, and the, and the, and the, the, the psychological work about this right now, meaning in life is different from, and I would argue that this myth says is deeper than simply leading a moral existence. You see, there's something more to wisdom than just morality. See, virtue is also about right, that, that, that meaningfulness, that meta-meaning. It's ultimately about being plugged into the cultivation of wisdom, not just doing what is morally correct. So, Siddhartha leaves the palace, he cuts his hair, leaves the palace, goes into the forest and he decides to follow the path of the renouncers and try to cultivate a solution to the fear and the turmoil that is still reverberating within him. So he pursues various, he meets up with various teachers and he pursues various things. But he gets, into, he gets into another troubled spot. Because although he leaves the palace, there's an important sense in which he hasn't left the having mode. Because he's still, he's still carrying that confusion. Because what he's pursuing is he's pursuing asceticism. He's trying to subject the body to 
tremendous trial and pain. Trying to bring it into con- complete submission. So he's, he's practicing self-denial. I mean, you can see why this would make sense, right? The palace was all about self-indulgence. So surely the solution is self-denial. That seems reasonable. Think about how often we do these swings between self-indulgence and self-denial. So he starves himself to the point where you can see his spine from the front of his body because his belly is so withdrawn and gaunt. It's pressing against the vertebrae of his back. He looks like some anemic specter in representations we have of him from that period. But but it's not working. It's not working. Because do you see what's still going wrong? Do you see it? Trying to annihilate the self is still thinking about having a self. He's still in the having mode. He's just transferred it from having bodily things to trying to have his self. Yes, he's trying to throw it away, because he, but he's still framing it in the having mode. He's still understanding the problem in the having mode. He is still modally confused. Self-denial is as much an aspect of this confusion as self-indulgence, because it's merely the negation of self-indulgence. It is not its transcendence. When you negate something, you are still framing it in the same way. So he's sitting on the banks of a river and he's fatiguing and he hears a barge going down the river and there's a musician playing and there's the musician has his apprentice and it's a lyre, a stringed instrument of some kind and he's saying to the apprentice, no, 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 listen. Listen to me. The strings can't be too tight and they can't be too loose. Too tight is just as bad as too loose. And think about Aristotle, right? Think about Aristotle, right? Where the golden mean, which doesn't mean just the middle point in some sort of average. And I say that because of how this has come to be understood. This is when Siddhartha discovers the middle path. It doesn't mean some, you know, compromising, middling solution. It means a, a radical reformation. Right? The middle path is to tra- is to transcend the having mode by rejection, rejecting both self-indulgence and its negation, self-denial. Right. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we talk about optimization strategies. We talked about it, remember, when we talked about flow. You're not trying to maximize, you're trying to optimize. You're trying to get the right connectedness. And see, and that's what the being mode's all about. It's about being connected in the right way. So Siddhartha has this realization. In the story, he... T- he the realization has come, he tumbles into the river and he's drowning and a little girl saves him, which is, I mean, in the culture of the time, that's extremely demeaning for a man who was once a prince 
to be saved by a little girl. It points to the radicalness of the change that's occurring for him. She gives him sort of the equivalent of rice pudding. That's why on Bodhi Day, uh, Buddhists will often eat rice pudding to celebrate that fact. So he realizes he must pursue the middle path. He must find a way of optimizing his cognition that allows him to transcend and rediscover this missing mode, the mode that he saw in the eyes of the mendicant. Now, this is important because this is the word for that kind of remembering, sati. It means to remember, to remind, not just like a fact, it means to be. It means to bring it to mind. So, this is a this is a modal memory. This is remembering a lost mode of being. This is not remembering some fact or event. This is remembering what it is like to be in the being mode. It is to recover a mode. It is a deep kind of restructuring of your being. It doesn't mean just simply remembering or reminding yourself. It's like when you go back to a place that you haven't been for a while and you start to recover and remember an identity you used to have there. You all, while you were away from the place, you remember the facts and the event, but when you go there, ah, right, this is what it was like to be me at this time. It's that kind of remembering. It's a modal memory. Right? It's, it's, it has to do with that participatory knowing we were talking about. Sitarda is trying to remember the being mode. It's in the eyes of the renouncer. And why do I bring this word up and go on about this? Because this is the word that is translated today by this term, mindfulness. But I bet you when I say mindfulness, especially if you're in touch with this revolution that is sweeping our culture, you probably didn't think of remembering the being mode. Now there are some astute authors who describe it that way. Stephen Batchelor uh, did in a beautiful little book called Alone with Others that I heartily recommend. <clears throat> Siddhartha is going to pick up on these psychotechnologies of mindfulness that he's learned from his teachers, but he found inadequate because he's going to transform them because he precisely wants to remember. He wants to recover, it's a better word, I would think, the being mode. Not as an intellectual idea, but as his very agency, in the very way in which the world is realized and co-identification with that agency. So, I want to stop now the story. We're going to pick it up on how what Siddhartha does in order to bring about this recovery. But I'm going to give you one way of thinking about it that we're going to build towards. Another way in which you remember in this sense of sati is when you wake up. 
Remember, we talked about this as one of the metaphors, the myths that people use for talking about self-transcendence. There's enlightenment, there's waking up, there's going from being a child to an adult. We'll come, we'll come back to these again and again. But what? When I wake up, this is not like when I just remembered yes, an event, when I, like right now and I remember, oh yes, I know it's out the hall. When I wake up, I recover my world and my identity. I deeply remember. And even look at what this word means. To belong to, to be a member. I belong again to myself and to the world. That's what happens when I'm waking up. And Siddhartha wants a mindfulness psychotechnology, in fact, in fact, not just a psychotechnology, a set of psychotechnologies that are going to help him remember, recover, sati, the being mode. He is going to awaken. And that's, in fact, what his title means. Buddha is not a name. Buddha is a title. It means the awakened one. But we need to talk about the cognitive science of mindfulness because we are here looking at Siddhartha precisely because of the mindfulness revolution that's happening here and now today. And the mindfulness revolution is a response to the meaning crisis. And we can see why it is. Even better if we resituate it within Siddhartha's myth. Because we see that he's cultivating mindfulness to cultivate awakening because awakening is a way of responding to the meaning crisis. Hence the title of this series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. But as a cognitive scientist, I'm critical, I'm both, I'm both appreciative of all of the scientific work that's being done on mindfulness, but I'm also critical of it, as a good scientist should be. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can understand and better formulate what, it mean, what mindfulness means. And this is based on work that I published in 2016 with Leo Ferraro on mindfulness. So again, why am I doing this? If we want to awaken from the meaning crisis, if we want to understand what Siddhartha's awakening was, we've got to understand what mindfulness meant to him. And what it meant to him is precisely the set of psychotechnologies that brings about awakening. And part of what I want to show is how can we get back to an understanding of mindfulness and its constitutive psychotechnologies that will afford precisely that. How can we get a deeper understanding of the, cog of the cognitive processes at work in mindfulness and how they can afford such important existential transformation? So if you ask people who are pursuing mindfulness practices, meditation, contemplative practices, I'll, I'll, I'll try and argue later why those shouldn't be treated as synonyms, for example, even though they often are. They'll give you a sort of standard understanding of what mindfulness is. And what I want you to first note is how much it is not picking up on what we've already said about sati. So people will tell you that to be mindful, what you're trying to do is pay attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion. Trying to learn how to notice 
there's a there's a, there's a hint. Look, there's this there's this there's this hint of the being mode, remembering the being mode still there, because they'll say it's about being present. They're invoking right the being mode, but they're doing it in a way that, well, helpful is maybe misleading. Now, I want to I want to make sure that you're understanding what I'm criticizing, what I'm not criticizing. In order to do that, let me tell you a little bit more. I both study mindfulness scientifically and do work on it, experiments and publish theoretical work on it. I also teach. I teach it, as I mentioned. I teach meditative practices. I teach contemplative practices, and I teach extracurricular Tai Chi Chuan, which is a form of moving mindfulness. So I am familiar with both. The academic attempt to explain mindfulness, and the pedagogical attempt to teach it. And I think it, it's important to have a foot in both of those worlds to realize a way in which you can become confused in your attempts to understand mindfulness. We need to avoid confusion by making a distinction. We avoid mortal confusion by. Recovering the distinction between the having mode and the being mode, we can get deeply confused about mindfulness if we do not remember the distinction between the language of training and the language of explaining. This is the language I use when I'm teaching people meditation and contemplation and Tai Chi. I use language that helps them acquire the skills. And this is language of imitation and involvement. And I can depend on our presence together. I can depend on the pragmatics of the situation. I can depend on the fact that their goal is that they want to acquire the skill. And so I'll use language there that's appropriate for that. But if I was simply to use that language unquestioningly here, I would make a mistake. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to use an example from memory because of the connections I'm making between mindfulness and memory. One of the most powerful ways you can train your memory is to use what's known as the method of location or the method of loci. If you want to sound、uh, more pretentious, okay? So. Some of you might have watched the Sherlock series. Sherlock does this with his mind palace, right? So what you do is you memorize the space, you memorize the rooms, right? So you can visualize them in your mind. And then, what if I want to? I want to remember a bunch of things. Let's say I want to remember stuff associated with Socrates. Then I have a figure of Socrates here, I, and then I put a bunch of other images there in that location. And then I, now I want to remember some stuff about Plato. And I have some other things here, some other images, and I put a bunch of images sort of with Plato and so forth. And then what I do in order to remember what I need to remember, I call this up. I go into this room, and I have all the images, and they're all tightly associated together. And I get all the information I need from Socrates, and then I go, and then I move in my mind palace to where Plato, the, the Plato room is, and I unfold it. And this is powerful. The orators of the ancient world could use the method of location, right, to in order to memorize speeches that would last up to six hours. 
And we know that this is a very powerful mnemonic. You should, if you're a student, you're studying, learn how to use this. It's not just how to become uh, a sociopathic uh, superhero detective. It is a good way to become a student, the method of location. Now, notice this. It is powerful language of training. It trains your memory well. Now, what you may do, and this would be a mistake, is you may think this is how memory is organized. This is called the spatial metaphor of memory. You may think, oh, well, this is how memory is organized. All, the, all my memories, for one thing, are, 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 are sort of stable things, like my image of Socrates. They're in a stable location, and all the things that, right, right, that are associated in my memory are actually closer together in my memory. So the way memory works is I send in a little homunculus, a little memory guy, so, right, and he searches through the rooms until he finds the right room, and then he goes in the room, and everything's organized there, and he finds what he needs, and then he brings it out, and then he passes it up to consciousness, oh, and that's how I remember, right? And we talk about searching through our memory and retrieving from our memory. Here's the thing, and Isaac and Keane pointed out this a long time ago. The spatial metaphor for memory is almost completely wrong. Your memory does not work this way. It doesn't work this way. That's a mistake. Here, I'll show you. Right? <clears throat> so tell me quickly, other colors associated with blue. You'll say red, green. Tell me other words that rhyme with blue. Uh, shoe. New. Okay, so red is close to blue and shoe is close to blue. Yes? So that means what else is close? Shoe and red. So when I say shoe, you should think of red. Do you? Of course you don't. Here's another way in which your memory isn't laid out this way. You rapidly know when you don't know something. What's, right? What's Meryl Streep's phone number? I don't know. Have you ever been in Bangkok? No. Well, what, what, what did Bob do? Did he get on like some sort of hyperspace motorcycle inside your, like, what did he, did he go to every place you've ever been? Is that Bangkok? Is that Bangkok? Is that Bangkok? No, he instantly knows you instantly know that you weren't in Bangkok. He instantly knows that you don't have Meryl Streep's phone number. He doesn't search all the space. In fact, it looks like he doesn't search it at all. Okay. Memory is a lot more mysterious and it does not operate in the simplistic manner that the spatial metaphor says. That spatial metaphor is great for training your language, for training your memory. It is great for training your memory, but it is overly simplistic and gets you to misunderstand, listen to my language, how memory actually works. The language by which we train mindfulness should not be imported critically into our scientific attempts to explain it and understand it.
paying attention to the present moment. First of all, I have to know what it is to pay attention. I'm going to show you that that's way more problematic than you think it, because you're probably thinking it's operating according to another metaphor, shining a spotlight. They pay attention the way I shine a spotlight. What's the present moment? I mean, when, we're, when I'm training you, yeah, we can sort of just make it happen because we can rely on the content. But what's the present moment? Right here, right now? That, that's, that nanosecond? This second? The last five minutes? The last hour? What's the present moment? See, the word present doesn't have a particular meaning. It's, an, it's called an indexical. It's relative to what I'm concerned. What's here? What's now? You see, when people think, oh, well, I can tell you what being the present moment is. It's paying attention to the here and now. That's useless. What's here? This spot I'm standing on? This room? This city of Toronto? This solar system? This universe out of all of the universes in the multiverse? What's now? See, you're not explaining anything. That language helps train people. But it's overly simplistic and misleading when we're trying to understand. What we need to do is reformulate mindfulness. And we need to do it in order to recover what Siddhartha was talking about. How can we understand mindfulness such that it can tell us how people can become awakened? That's what we need. That's how we have to reformulate mindfulness. So let's try and do that. Let's, and let's make use of some of the things we've already built upon here. We can, we, can, we can bring in Plato to help us. And what a great ally that is to have. Because, do you remember what Plato pointed out? That our knowledge is not captured just by a list of features. Remember, the bird isn't just the wings, the feather, the beak. It's also the structural, functional organization. The thing is, if you look at most people's definition of mindfulness, even in scientific articles, all they give you is a feature list. To be mindful is being present, which we've got to do something about because that's just language of training. It's not explanatory language, right? Not judging. And then that's going to be problematic. What do you mean not judging? I'm supposed to pay attention to my breath and not pay attention to my distractions. That's a kind of judging. What do you mean not judging? Well, right. What does it mean? It's somehow supposed to bring about, right, something like insight. And that's going to be important because insight, I'm going to argue, is on a continuum with awakening. I'll explain what that means. And it's supposed to reduce your reactivity. You're supposed to become more equanimous, more balanced. So, you know, mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment, right? Being present, paying attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion. It's supposed to bring about insight. The form of meditation I teach, the Buddhist form, claimed it goes back to Siddhartha. It's called Vipassana. Vipassana means insight. Obviously not just an intellectual insight, but an existential insight. Right? It's supposed to reduce reactivity. What does that mean? Now that's a feature list. 
We're missing the IDOS. We're missing the structural functional organization that tells me how all of those things actually go together. So this is what we need to do. We need to turn this feature list into a feature schema. We need to recover its missing structural functional organization. And we need, right, we need to reinterpret all of these things so we can actually explain their functionality. And we need to do that by tying them to independently, right, independently constructed theory theoretical claims within psychology. Look, we have people who are doing the psychology and the cognitive science of attention, of insight, of improved self-regulation. Let's pay attention, no pun intended, to what they're telling us about how insight, attention, self-control operate. So one of the things you do to turn, to, to, to turn a feature list into a feature schema is you make some distinctions between the types of features. So here's, of these core four that we keep seeing a lot, being present, not judging, or non-judging, Insight, right, and reduced reactivity. I've split them up like this because there's a distinction here. These are states that I can get into, right? These are things I these are things I can do. So being present is something I, I can do. I can start it, I can stop it. We're gonna have to come back to what it means. But we know it's an activity you're engaging in because it's constantly being disrupted while you're meditating and you're constantly having to engage in it again. And the same thing with not judging. Not judging is something you're doing. It's a weird kind of paradoxical not doing. But again, you can start it, it can stop, you can restart it again. But these, these are not things you're doing. These are results. So to use the language of psychology, these are states you can get into, but these are traits that you cultivate. You want to become more insightful. You want to become less reactive. So immediately we understand, oh wait, so these are things I do, and these are traits that I'm supposed to be realized when I'm cultivating mindfulness. Now questions immediately emerge. By making this distinction, I can ask this question. How does being present cause insight? Or how does being present reduce reactivity? Why do, does non-judging cause insight? Does non-judging cause reduce reactivity? What's the causal relation? Notice that the feature list doesn't talk about this at all. It doesn't talk about how the features are causally related. It doesn't talk about how the states can cause the traits. But it also doesn't ask constitutive questions. Constitutive questions are part-whole relationships. What's, what's this? Is this a part of this? Is this a part of this? Are they both part of some whole? What's that? What's the structural relationship here? What about these? Is this part of this? Is this part of this? Are they both part of some whole? See, the feature list does not have the IDOS by not having the IDOS or not looking for the IDOS, 
It's not asking any of these questions, these causal and constitutive questions. Now, as we start to answer these questions, and as we start to answer them with the language of explaining rather than the language of explaining, we will turn a feature list into a feature schema. We will start to get at the structural functional organization of mindfulness, and we'll start to get a deeper understanding of it. And that will, that will help us to see how it is that mindfulness can bring about the kind of radical transformations that were promised by Siddhartha's realization. All right. So I'm going to focus on this one right now. And again, we'll start by talking about specific insights, but obviously we're not talking about this insight or that insight. We're talking about a fundamental existential modal kind of transformation. Okay, I've already said this language is useless. People say, okay, well, what I meant was something like concentration. That's, that, 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 that can't be right. That's, that's not good enough. Because if you take a look at Siddhartha's attempt to explain it, he talks about right concentration. So that's why I have concentration here. Right? If Siddhartha is telling you that there's right concentration, what does that strongly mean? That there is wrong concentration. Mindfulness isn't about concentration, it's about getting the right kind of concentration. What does that mean? Well, oh, it means paying attention. Okay. Right? Again, you're using a particular model for attention. Let's talk about these two things a little bit, and let's talk about, right, Let's talk about what Siddhartha and when he's hearing not too tight, not too loose for the strings. First of all, let's work our way up phenomenologically. I want you to compare two ways of concentrating. This is based on work done by Ellen Langer, who wrote probably the first book on mindfulness in the West called Mindfulness in like 1988, way before the mindfulness revolution took off. And there's a lot of questions about what's the relationship between her account of mindfulness and the Buddhist. I'm not getting into that right now because that's not what I'm trying to establish. I'm just using her way of trying to get you to understand concentration. Okay, so we're going to do it right here, right now. Okay, so I want you to concentrate on my finger. Concentrate on it. Concentrate. Concentrate. Concentrate on my finger. Concentrate. Don't let your mind wander. Concentrate. Okay, so most of you found that unpleasant. Um, because notice what the metaphor even says. This is what I'm doing. I'm concentrating. I'm making my mind into a tunnel. And then I'm sort of sticking it on something. And trying to keep it there, not let it move. Right? And the only training you were given was what I was doing. Yelling. Concentrate. Concentrate. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do something else. Okay, ready? Okay, I want you to look at my finger. I want you to notice that it's not actually perfectly straight. It's bent a little bit, and it's a little bit thicker at the bottom than at the top, and there are sort of multiple sections to it, and it's a little bit red on one's... It's very different, wasn't it? She calls that soft vigilance. 
because what you're doing there is not externally hardening your mind and sticking it on things. What you're doing is constantly trying to renew your interest. <clears throat> and this is a great word. This comes from, right, inter-essay, to be within something. To be within something. It's about that conformity that Aristotle was talking about. What you're doing is constantly exploring and opening it up. So we need a model of concentration that does this soft vigilance, that's constantly renewing your interest, getting you deeply involved with something, because it's going to get you intimately in contact with it. So, what kind of attention are we talking about? And, right, we don't want too hard. Those are the strings too hard. Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Strings are too hard, too tight. Oh, just do whatever you want. That's too loose. How can we, look, notice how when I got, had you sort of move over my finger, it's almost like a well-tuned string. It's almost got this musicality of intelligibility to it. Well, now you need to know, understand What's going on with attention? Because what I want to show you is attention isn't a spotlight. It's a, it's a very complex optimization process. It's really about tuning and getting between too tight and too loose and allow you to becoming intimately involved, conformed to, participating, inter-essay with, with whatever you're paying attention to. Okay, so why do we like the spotlight metaphor. It's even in, psych in you'll, you'll find it in psychology textbooks. Attention is like a spotlight. <laughs> well, because one of the things that attention does is captured very well by the spotlight metaphor. Look, when I shine a light on something, it makes that stand out. It makes it stand out because it's brighter. Remember when things stand out, that salience? It makes things more salient. That's what attention does. It makes things more salient. Attention is about, right, now we're getting something. That's what I was doing here. I was making things salient to you. Features of my finger more salient to you. What's wrong with the spotlight? Well, what's wrong, what's wrong with the spotlight metaphors? Well, it picks up on that attention is about optimizing salience, it's missing so much of what that optimization actually is and how it can be connected to insight. So, some excellent work done by Christopher Mole. Again, very complex argument and I'm not going to try and go through the whole thing, but try to get into an understanding that attention isn't something you directly do. Let me, let me try and give you comparison here. Walk and practice. See, walking is something I can ask you to directly do. I can say, walk, and you walk. Start walking. Stop walking. Start walking again. Great. But if I say to you, practice, come on, practice. You should say to me, practice what? See, you practice something by optimizing how you're doing something else. 
If I'm practicing chess, I'm not playing chess and doing some other thing, practicing. To practice chess is to optimize how I play chess. To practice tennis is not to do tennis and some additional secret action, practicing. What I'm doing when I'm practicing tennis is optimizing how I play tennis. Now, Mole's point is you don't directly pay attention. But it's not obvious to you that that's the case because it's both the prevalence of the metaphor and how skilled you are at paying attention. But this is how you pay attention. You pay attention by optimizing some other process. That's why when I ask you to pay attention, I can be asking you to do many different things. I can ask you to pay attention and it means optimize your seeing so that it becomes looking and watching. I can ask you to pay attention and it means optimize your hearing so that it becomes listening. I can ask you to pay attention and that means doing the two together. Optimizing your looking and your listening and so that they're coordinated well together. But notice if I say to you, I want you to pay attention, but I don't want you to do that by optimizing or improving anything else you're doing. I don't want you to pay attention by improving your looking or your listening or your remembering. I just want you to directly pay attention. Come on, do it right now. Pay attention. You don't know what to do. See, you pay attention by optimizing other things you're doing. Now, Mole talks about this as cognitive unison. When we're optimizing, what we're trying to do is coordinate various processes so that they're sharing the same goal and working well together. Think about Plato's idea about getting various different systems to work well together. So what we need to understand is, what is attention? What's it, how is it optimizing? How is it integrating things together? How does that get improved in mindfulness practice, how does it bring about insight? Not just an insight into this problem or this problem, but the insight, the systematic insight that is awakening, that motivates and empowers people to radically transform themselves so that they can escape from modal confusion and other existential dilemmas. We'll take a look at that next time. Thank you very much for your time. Man, that one flew by. I thought we was like halfway into that. That was so cool. I love that one. Yeah. Make some noise for Johnny V M A Z. How was that for you? Savage Chill says, is it me or did this one feel shorter? It wasn't. It felt mad short, but it wasn't. It was the same that they're all about 55 minutes. Yo! That one flew by! There was something about the arrangement and then he kept jumping from things and cliffhanging and pom 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 pom. And uh, yeah, that was great. Prince Chibika says, I love that Minecraft cameo. It's that flow state music, you know? Get that Minecraft music in there.
That's the modal being of Minecraft. Oh! Oh! Daniel Lazarevsky says Akira is the crypto of the music capital. Robert Easy says it fell short. Well, yes. Yes. That's what happens when you inflow, baby. Time for you. What? 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 That was one of those cool ones where you like you get in. And, uh, Get into the zone of the, of the whole thing, you know. Jody V! Raw, what a guy. What a guy. Shouts out to Canada, you know. Shouts out to all them epic Canadians. Why have we got so many epic Canadians in the Meaning Wave universe? I just don't understand it. It's like Sweden. It's like disproportionately for its size. It's disproportionately epic. And its output of bad, bad, bad mama jammers, you know. Shouts out to Ugly God, that's an Ugly God beat right there. Ugly God, thanks. Thanks, Ugly God. Sitsi for Skunk says, John Viveki brought my power back on, literally. Nice. Nick Mayoga says, so good, so very powerful and concise. Nice. Yeah. Ekansvillier says, be the harp. In tune. In tune. Timothy Delgado says, what's up, baby? Appreciate you. Says, skr, skr. Chris O'Dell says, Fraxel. Appreciate you, baby. Shouts out to Chris O'Dell and Kira. Kira. Hi. Word XP in the place to be says, I like the idea of renewing interest, looking at details as an idea of helping one concentrate. Yeah, right? That's a powerful one. That's a powerful one. Because there's always more, you know? There's always another layer to find. There's always another level of interest. Whatever it is. I used to do a thing when I was sat on the bus. You used to spend a lot of time on the bus in the UK. I'd look at everyone, I'd imagine their stories. I'd imagine what they were going through. And imagine where they come from, what they were doing, their backstories, all that. Sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd be enjoying being on the bus, just looking at levels of things, whether it was people or the things around me or the things I was passing. I would end up just like going round and round on the bus trip. I'd end up like sat there for hours. You didn't have smartphones in those days. If you got on the bus and there wasn't one of those free metro newspapers, you were shit out of luck. You were going to have to do some thinking. I did a lot of thinking in those days. I did a lifetime's worth of thinking in those days. Sometimes a lot of that thinking will come back to me, you know? I haven't used it all yet. Sativa Skunk, I found that extremely helping in orienting focus on meditation. Excellent. Mason, modal, modal confusion makes you easier to sell to. Exactly. Well, look what's going on. Look around, look around. <laughs> hey! Hey! That's the mode. Modal confusion is the mode. If you let it be, that's why I always say, you know, don't pay attention to that shit. Look elsewhere. Occupy yourself with your own shit. The devil will find work for idle hands to do, and the devil will find modal confusion with which to. Timothy Delgado says, Ugly God beats go! Thanks, Ugly God. That's what we say. Cedric has anyone done John Viveki's guided meditation? Sativa Skunk says, is that a real thing? You mean the guided meditation? He does live streams like every, 
a lot. He does like a lot of live streams, you know? You know, in the early days of the meaning stream, when we were doing the meaning stream, or when it was the quarantine stream, he was doing like a daily, uh, like meditation thing. Uh, let's have a look at his channel. Hey, Viveki John's channel. Let's have a look what you're going on. What's he got going on? Video voices with Viveki. People talking with Viveki, you know. He has ill conversations with ill people like my homeboy Jordan Holder. Yeah, meditating with Viveki. Lessons only. Lots of lessons. Let's have a look at the videos of the, and arrange them in a most recent audience. That's what he's doing. Look, he puts up lots of stuff, you know. He had a video up yesterday about Dialogos, about parabolic knowing. See, he goes in. Virtuosity in hype media with Jordan Hall. I haven't seen that one yet. Bloody hell, he's got lost. You know, look, at, he's very busy. Very busy. So busy, he can't, he can't be doing different thumbnails. <laughs> Transcendence of escapism. That's where he was pointing out that Star Wars is actually useful. It's a good one. Meditating with Jean Viveki. Live. Okay, so he's not doing the meditations as often as he was, but... I would just say go subscribe to Viveki John's channel, you know, and check out a bunch of his existing meditations and his absolute wealth of epic content. Look how much wonderful stuff he's got. Oh, much wonderful stuff. He's very, very productive. One might even say perhaps hyper-productive. You know, because all the while he's doing this, he's still like writing books and running science experiments and teaching people and rah, 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 rah. Oh! Vince uh, Shinkovich, is that a fellow Pole? It looks Polish. It looks Poly. It's spelt with a CH rather than a CZ, but it's still a Vich. Shouts out to all the Viches out there, baby. Shouts out to all my bitches. Uh, Vince says, hey, is it true that you were shadow banned somewhere? And why on earth would one do that? Only because of popularizing Peter's son. Do you know what? I don't know. I don't know the truth of any of this stuff, and frankly, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. Uh, there's so there's so much to do, and uh, we're here. You know, we're here. We're here. I think to myself, I think, hey, you know, a, a decade or so ago, like there was none. We didn't have this. We have it now. And maybe some things are pushed more than other things, and other things are kind of pushed down, and this, that, and the other. But at this moment in time, this moment right here, right now, we're here. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. My grandpa didn't have this. Neither did my father. Yet here we are, you know? And maybe, maybe this is just this brief instant. Maybe it's all gone tomorrow. And if so, it was wonderful, and I loved it. Vince says, nah, not Polish, a uh, Belarusian. Your music helps maintain sanity. You know, God bless, baby. That's an honor. That's an honor. Thank you. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And you know, we're working as hard as we can uh, to get you as much epic music as we can while we can, you know, while we have this moment in time. You know, I'm not involved in any kind of physical uh, fracas right now. No one's bombing my house, you know. I'm not like, oh, shit, are there helicopters, you know what I mean? I'm not looking out for airplanes. I'm not hiding in the bunker. You know, I'm doing doing meaning streams and making music, baby. And it's, uh, you know, it's epic. It's joyful. It's, uh, it's an honor. It's a privilege. 
And as long as we have the ability, as long as we have this capacity, we're going to take advantage of that, baby. We're going to go as hard as we can, you know, as optimally, as optimally, you know, as possible. Operation Optimal, baby. Dan Frank says the first few of the new meditations in March of 2020 are instructions. Nice. Go check those out, yo. WordXP says, I first heard the idea of the Mind Memory Palace by McKenna. I don't know why I find it so intimidating or unrealistic, but trying to challenge that feeling, because memorizing is very powerful. I was teaching Hercules uh, the trick of remembering new names earlier. We were, go we were going for our walk, and uh, along the way down to the lake, one of the houses along the little windy road down to the lake has got a big, big chicken coop in it. A great big chicken coop, you know? We go down, we see the chicken. Herky always goes says hi to them. Today we met the chicken lady, you know? The, the woman, uh, the woman uh, who, whose chickens they are. She feeds the chickens, you know? And uh, she introduced herself to us. She told us her name. And she introduced us to the chicken itself, you know? And uh, her name... I'm trying to remember it now, Jim, do my association thing. The chicken, the chicken was called Tom Willie. Tom Willie. The chicken was called Tom Willie. And we remembered that because we thought of Tom Nook and how Tom Nook's little helpers don't wear pants. And that's, that's a, a little thing we had for remembering that. And then the lady's name, I associated uh, a famous person's name. And I forgot it. For some reason, I'm thinking Phoebe, so that didn't work. Who's the person on Friends whose name begins with an M? I thought, like, I thought, uh, Phoebe, you associate, like, a name with an another name. We've heard it with a different thing. And then a thing that's related. So I thought, like, neighborhood, neighbors, friends, that'll do. And then I instantly forgot it. It's the one with the M. It's the one with black hair. That's not working well enough. Yeah, I need to go look into that mind palace, huh? No, we're not talking about Tom Hanks. No, Tom Nook from, from Animal Crossing. Because he's got those little helpers and they don't wear pants, you see. So then you get the association, Tom Willie. That one works. Monica, that's it. Exactly, D-Man, it's Monica. Monica, there you go. Yeah, see, it kind of works. Feels like it works. Feels like it didn't really work. <laughs> anyway, she's lovely, man. She offered me some eggs, you know. She offered me some eggs for free. How about that? Thank you, Monica. Eggs for free. Imagine that. What a world. That's a good neighbor right there. Hey! Anyway, it works. The Tom Nook. Uh, the Tom Nook. Thing works. Hercules remembered the name of that rooster when we got home. That cock. A roll. Shouts out to the Telegang. Telegang. Shouts out to the Telegang. People are posting gifts, shouting Monica. That's wonderful. Exactly. If you want to join the Telegram gang, the Telegang, it's t.me slash Akira the Don. t.me slash Akira the Don, baby.
YouTube Hero Alex says Monica is best girl. She's a lovely chicken lady, you know? Lovely, lovely chicken lady. Sergio says, don't try rescue people who don't want to be rescued and be very careful about rescuing those who do. Good point, well made. Speaking of which, bloody hell, from Meaning Crisis and Chill to Biblical Series, is the Biblical Series tomorrow. Tomorrow, here on the Meaning Stream, we're doing the Biblical Series with Jordan B. Peterson. Live, live scoring, live sound tracking. So that will be epic. Make sure you're here for that. 7CT Sharp. And we'll be here tomorrow morning for the Meaning Wave Morning Show. Which I keep meaning to rebrand as Club Meaning. And haven't made the time to do the necessary logo design. Anything really. Right now I'm back in Turbo Hardcore Album Mode. Turbo Hardcore Album Mode on March's album. Which you're gonna love so much. You're gonna be so excited. Oh, oh, you're gonna love it so much. But anyway, like we always do this time, like we always do since yesterday, I kind of like it as a, as a potential tradition. Uh, who's sat in the seat? Timothy Delgato. Is Timothy Delgato here? Is Timothy Delgato in the building? Hey, Timothy Delgato, you're sat in the seat of Yeet. Would you like to spin the wheel of vibes? Are you ready to spin that wheel of vibes? This magic wheel that kind of spins itself. Twitchero Alex. Are you ready to allow the wheel to spin itself with the mind power of Timothy Delgado? Timothy Delgado is going to lock in. He's going to, oh, there he goes. He's doing it. Well done, Timothy Delgado. There you go. He's spinning that, he's spinning that wheel. Nice one, Timothy Delgado. Nice one. Nice one. What's it going to land on? What vibe are we going to get out of this epic wheel? I do wonder. Look at it go. It's just going. It's going. Boom. Timothy Delgato, we're going to visit the 2000s tomorrow morning on the Meaning Wave Morning Show, a.k.a. Club Meaning. Thank you for that, Timothy Delgato. Uh, are you happy with your spin, Timothy Delgato? Are you glad of what you've achieved there? Are you proud of what you've achieved? I mean, you should be. It's pretty epic what you've achieved. I wouldn't have thought of doing that. That's great. I'm going to really enjoy playing 2000s music tomorrow morning on the on the Meaning Stream. chat there and just too much too confusing too much stuff god bless this chat god bless everybody locked in life thank you for being here this is meaning crisis and chill with vivek don and akira the don we'll be back tomorrow thank you to everyone who supported during the stream of course if you want to support the stream get on over to indiegogo the link is in the description and back that vinyl campaign today because you want jbp wave vinyl you want the alan watts vinyl there's only a few left and you want JBP Wave 4 to exist. And you want an orchestra. You want an orchestra on a Meaning Wave song. A real orchestra on a Meaning Wave song. And you want to see YouTube Hero Alex's face. That face.
face. That beautiful face. Ooh, I've seen it. I think I saw it. It might have been a deep fake. I don't know. I'd tell these days. This is the age of miracles and wonder. Miracle and wonders. Miracles and wonders. This is the long distance call. Thank you for being here, Word XP says thanks for this lecture series, Getting Woke at Exponential Speed. Yeah! FL Space Bear says I ordered mine last night. Good work, FL Space Bear. God bless. Shouts out to everyone who's backed this campaign already. We've got a, camp- a competition running as well. The link is in the description uh, if you want to enter the competition to win the vinyl set. And if you've backed the campaign, uh, I would suggest sharing it perhaps with someone who might enjoy it. Yeah, that's always the good things to do. Also, head on over to MeaningWave.com. Cop the epic garments. Uh, we got new shit dropping possibly tomorrow. Got some epic new stuff dropping. Boom! Boom, boom, boom! All right, baby, all that remains for us to do now is the uh, buy five, you know, the buy five. God bless the buy five. God bless the brave citizens of the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you tomorrow. Three, two, one. Bye, four. Bye, five, baby, bye, four.